My name is Christina Crook, and I am the author of The Joy of Missing Out. I want to welcome you to the JomoCast, a podcast for founders and creators seeking joy in a digital age. Jomo is the joy of missing out on the right things. Things like toxic hustle, comparison, and digital drain to make space for life-giving commitments that bring us peace, meaning, and joy. Ingrid Fatel Lee is the author of Joyful, the surprising power of ordinary things to create extraordinary happiness, and also the site The Aesthetics of Joy, where she shares amazing, actionable tips and essays about how we can find joy absolutely everywhere around us. She's been a TED speaker and brings more than a decade of experience in design and branding to showing audiences how to make life more beautiful and joyful. In this episode, we discuss how we can and should create joy intentionally, how committing to the present builds a climate of joy, how joy creates health, resilience, and can create lasting happiness, and also how we can find joy almost anywhere, off and online. I sat down with Ingrid in New York City this fall, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I am in New York City with Ingrid Vitale Lee, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with the woman that embodies <laughs> all things joyful. Yeah, thanks for being with me. Oh, thank you. I'm really, really delighted to be with you. <laughs> so when I reached out to Ingrid uh, about being on the Jomo cast, she tipped me off to an article she wrote many years ago about Jomo. So that's one of the things we're going to be digging into today. But I wanted to start off kind of at the heart of your work and really asking the question, how did you come to this passion for joy? Yeah, it's a good question because I didn't start out studying joy. I started out studying design. I'm a designer by background. And it was when I was in my first year of graduate school um, studying industrial design when a professor made an offhand comment. He was looking at my work. It was a, a review um, where you, you lay out all your work that you made over the course of the semester and all the professors. You have a panel of professors that comes and looks at it and gives you their unfiltered feedback. And he said, your work gives me a feeling of joy. And I wasn't expecting this. I mean, these reviews can be real nail biters. And so I was really expecting, you know, you, you expect your work to be sort of ripped apart a little bit. And so I was um, very relieved to hear that my work was joyful, but my relief was immediately followed by confusion because I've always thought of joy as this intangible, ephemeral feeling. And to say that it could come from stuff, things that I had made seemed weird. I mean, there were things like a cup and a lamp and a stool. And I thought, how do those things create joy? We're always told that you know money doesn't buy happiness and that stuff isn't a source of joy. And so how did this work? How could things create joy. And this question, I mean, the professors couldn't answer it. And so I left this review feeling intrigued and frustrated. I wanted to understand how does the physical world influence our intangible emotions? And how do we, if it's possible for things to create joy, how do we use that as designers to create a, a more joyful world? And as I started to dig into it, I found a couple things. First of all, that joy is much deeper than just a, a superficial emotion. That joy really connects to our thriving as human beings. And so when we can create joy, we actually can create health, well-being, 
resilience. Um, it can spark our, our mental performance. It improves our memory and our cognition. So there's so many things that joy can influence in our lives and that there are actually ways to design joy that are universal, that actually stimulate joy wherever we go, um, in any ethnicity, um, across genders, across the spectrum of age, that there are reliable things that we can look at Mm. that elicit that feeling of joy. Two things immediately come to mind, the word flourishing, which you get into in Joyful, and I'm going to read out a quote where you talk about that, and also the fact that it's so empowering because there's actually things you can do about it. I think when I first started thinking about joy and I hadn't encountered your work yet, I would have thought, you know, it, it is a very ephemeral thing. How on earth could we actually build this in, right? It's something that you need to grab for and like, you know, hope that it comes your way, but you teach how people can actually action on that. And I think that's why people are so drawn to your work. That's why I'm drawn to your work. Oh, thank you for that. I mean, for me, that is the crux of it, that um, joy isn't just something we have to find. And I, and I can show people how to spot and notice more joy. And that's a big part of it. But at the root of it, joy isn't just something we have to find. It's something we can create and we can create it for ourselves and we can create it for others. And once we know that, I think we're much less vulnerable to the up and down swings of emotion. It's not to say that we're not going to have bad days and we're not going to feel down sometimes. That's just human and that's just natural. But knowing that we can actually design more joy into our lives, I think it's very liberating. Super liberating. So how has your relationship with joy grown and changed over the years? So it's been 10 years since I first started studying this. And I think that it's a little bit the way that we were talking about it. I think in the beginning, I thought about joy as this thing that I just had to wait for or catch if I were lucky enough to have a moment of it drift by. And now I feel that it's a much more intentional thing. I think one of the things that really helped change my relationship to joy was understanding the difference between joy and happiness. Hmm. Um, because we we mix those two words up a lot in our culture. But from a scientific perspective, they're actually two different things. And happiness is um, a broad evaluation of how we feel about our lives over time. Psychologists use the word subjective well-being. That's usually what they hmm. say when they mean happiness. And it's it's an appraisal. It's when we look at our lives and we say, we look across our work, um, whether we feel like we have a sense of meaning and purpose in life, how connected we feel to other people. We look at all those factors. If you were to sort of score your happiness on a scale of one to 10, you would sort of have a number in there, but it's hard. It's vague. It's, it's, um, it's hard to come up with a value of how happy you are. And so sometimes we're not exactly sure. Whereas joy happens in moments. So the way that psychologists define joy is as an intense momentary experience of positive emotion. And when you think about that, it's much easier to notice that you have several moments of joy every day. Um, and to say, okay, well, I don't know how I would go about making myself happy because that's a big task, but I know I could make a few more moments of joy every day. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I don't really think so much about, am I happy anymore? I think about, does this day have joy in it? If not, what could I do to create more of it? Right. I want to point out that I painted one nail turquoise uh, in Ingrid's honor. (laughs) I love it. Because I was watching a video of you recently and you had all of your beautiful multicolored nails and I love that about you. And it's such a tangible thing where I'm like, I actually want to have one turquoise nail. Every time I look at it, I feel a spark of joy. 
It's super practical. It's simple, but it yeah. is. Pra- yeah, it's funny. Um, my nails are chipped right now, but I have I have most of a rainbow. And um, on the subway this morning, there was a little girl who was looking at me. I was holding my phone and looking at something on my phone, and she said to her dad, she just whispered, "She's like, I like her nails." <laughs> it was so cute and so sweet. And then she, I said the nails and she was like, yeah, I like them. And she's like, and that one matches your phone. Um, she was so excited about it. And it's, I think we forget and we dismiss these things as trivial, but actually, you know, that was a, a very simple, small moment of connection and it happens all the time. And even when it's just me all day working on my computer, rather than just sitting and looking at the keys and the and the screen, I look down and I see a rainbow tapping away on the keys. And it's a very simple thing that can change, that can sort of break the monotony of my workday. So interesting. Um, so I'm going to go back to your writing about Jomo in 2013. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, you wrote about Jomo and here's what you said. You said, quote, there can be and should be a blissful, serene enjoyment and knowing and celebrating that there are folks out there having the time of their life at something that you might have loved to, but are simply skipping. By the laws of physics, you can only be in one place at a time. You're going to miss things. The question is, how do you deal with it? To make deliberate choices and to revel, and I love that word, to revel in ones you've made. That's what Jomo is and what I'm embracing this year. You go on to say, joy is about presence, about being in the moment and soaking in every sensation that moment has to offer you. The fear of missing out intrudes on an experience, causing you to feel torn between different moments and lessening your pleasure wherever you are. And my question is, how do you, Ingrid Vitelli, TED speaker, author, designer, with all of the demands on your life, experience the joy of missing out? How do you find pleasure right where you are in a given moment? I think that for me, it's this awareness. I really, it's, I haven't read that piece in a while, so I'm really glad to be reminded of it. And this idea of joy being in presence I mean, we actually know that when people when people's thoughts are in the present, they're more likely to feel joy than when their thoughts are wandering to the past or to the future. Um, there are ways in which, you know, anticip- anticipation can be joyful or bringing up memories can be joyful. But fundamentally, when we're in the present um, is when we're most likely to feel joyful. Um, and I think that it has a lot to do with commitment. I think joy is about committing to whatever you're doing. And when we feel this pull between two things, when we commit to something, but then get a better offer and decide to do that instead, when we, when we do those kinds of things, when we go to something half-heartedly because we feel like we should be there or we're going to be missing out if we don't go, all of those things hamper our commitment. and. And we do feel that inner conflict. And so we're not fully present. Right. And I, and I, and I want to commit fully to whatever I'm doing. And so I think, you know, that manifests in learning how to get really good at saying no, both to other people and to myself. And one of the things that someone taught me recently, I did a big post on saying no and how to say no joyfully. And one of the comments I got that I thought was really helpful was when you decline something to write it on your calendar. Um, 
And I thought, well, I declined it. Like, why would I write it on my calendar? Right. I would, I I'm trying to get rid of things. I'm trying to clear space. I'm <laughs> yeah. not trying to have all Margin, this clutter. Right. But actually yeah. what happens when you, um, when you write something on your calendar that you declined for very good reasons is then you get to that day in your calendar and you see what you would have been doing if you'd said yes in a half-hearted way. If you'd said yes to something that you didn't fully want to commit to and you get to have that day. And not only do you get to have that free day or that day doing the thing that you really want to do, but you get the reminder of how, if you hadn't protected your time, if you hadn't been more thoughtful about what you choose to commit to, you would have missed out on the, the fun you're having in the present. That's so interesting. I feel like that person might not have children because I'm like, there's so many things on the calendar, so many different calendars. Um, but I know that's that's an amazing idea. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I hadn't heard it either. I think I love that you talked about commitment, though. That's something I've been thinking a lot about. I came across a stat uh, earlier this year about, you know, Scandinavia's all got all of its shit together, right? It's always tops out on the happiness um, reports, but that the average Scandinavian is a member of like four to six social groups. Like they've made those commitments. And so on a given Thursday night, they're not negotiating. They're not having decision-making fatigue around, do I watch Netflix tonight? Do I, right? Like the decision's already been made. They've made a commitment to punch needle class or whatever it is, right? And they're going. And I think there's something really true about that, that when we commit to something and we see it through, like you've already made that choice and um, you can have confidence and joy in that choice. But yeah, looking at all those things that you would have been doing instead of lounging on your couch, I could see how that would be (laughs) quite a joyful thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the joy of missing out and thinking about how do you intensify the joy of that, part of intensifying the joy is reminding yourself what you what you turn down to be there and and what you you know what that commitment really is yeah that i'm gonna have to think on that one for a while that's really good um how does the internet contribute to your joy i mean if i had no internet then i would never have been able to start the aesthetics of joy blog and that is the root of so much joy in my life i think that when I started that blog and I started putting things out into the universe and said, I'm studying joy and here's what I'm noticing and started receiving comments back. I mean, of course, this is before Twitter. It was before social media. It was back when all we had was Flickr, really, for image sharing. Um, It opened up all of these spaces and connections and intersections, so much of my work was made possible because of that. And I'm someone who my work and my life bleed together. Because when you write about joy, I mean, I I often thank my younger self for choosing to study joy, because it has, it began as a research project, but it, all that research influenced my life. And so I've made so many friends because of the blog and and now through social i i think from a scientific perspective i now understand some of the things that happened there right one of the things that was happening and continues to happen is that um when we share joy our joy intensifies mm. and so a blog or 
social. These are mechanisms for sharing joy. I think they've been turned into many other things, but the original root purpose of a service like Instagram, for example, is I saw something, it brought me joy, it made me smile, it lifted my spirits, and I wanted to share it with you. I wanted to share it with some other people so that they could experience that joy too. Um, And so so that's one thing that happens. The other thing is that um, when others celebrate that joy with us, it intensifies that joy even further. So there's one piece of joy we get just from sharing, even if people don't really respond. But there's another thing that happens when that joy is reflected back at us. And so those are two ways that just putting something out into the universe via the internet amplifies it in a way that you just would never be able to find that many joy seekers or like minds in person. Or it would be weird to walk up to someone on the street and be like, look at this thing I just saw. I took this photo of it. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> look at this dog with its cute pink cast and on its forepaw with a you know little heart on it. Like, You've got to see this, right? But you can do that on the internet and whoever is interested in that will find it. Um, so That's I think there's a, a real example. power in that. And yeah. so it's it's community, of course. It's it's a way to be in community with other people, but it's um it's a it's a particularly joyful form of community. Yes. Um, how does the internet diminish your joy? I think that one of the challenges, I think there are a couple things. One is that Technology dematerializes our experience. It's it's a tool of abstraction. And so in, in so many areas of life, I mean, if you look at money, for example, money has gone from being this thing that used to feel so tangible. You can feel the coolness of the coins and the softness of a bill worn smooth to now being numbers that move through the air on, on a screen. And so no wonder it's hard, harder to manage money now because it feels so abstract. Yeah. Um, and so our transactions are less material um, because we're not handing something over and getting something back. And while that's more convenient and easier, um, it takes, I think when we take friction out of an experience, we often take away potential for joy. Um, so we make something seamless and easy and then we don't have to talk to each other. And so then, you know, we, we actually become more isolated in the process. Mm. Um, I think, uh, so I think there are lots of experiences that, I mean, the same is true with like birthdays. You used to call your friends on their birthdays. Now you text them with some emojis. And your parents. Yeah. And maybe you put the, you know, maybe you put a champagne emoji and a, and a party hat emoji on there and that's, and you call it a day and we expect that now. And so our social relationships have also become less materialize. And so what happens is that I think we, we live in this very, um, like most of our senses are not engaged right in that experience. And so for me, you know, sitting in front of a computer all day, instead of drawing or writing, I mean, I still write a lot longhand because I think I need the sensorial experience of that, but, um, our senses get very bored. Um, we don't realize it because we think we're being stimulated all the time. We're being stimulated by imagery and movement all the time, but what we're not being stimulated by is anything tactile, anything that smells like anything, anything that, you know, very little sound. Um, So we miss out on a lot of sensation. So I think that's one way that the internet diminishes my joy. I think the other thing is, of course, comparison, that you have ready comparisons available at all times. And so, you know, I was talking about this recently with Erin Jang, who's an illustrator and art director um, and one of the things that she said is that when she's feeling 
like in a creative rut or whatever, the first thing she does is gets off social media. Um, And don't look at other creatives in your field. Start looking at creatives out of your field. Start go, go to um, go to a library and look at people, books of people from the past, right? Um, Watch cooking shows. If you're a designer, watch cooking shows because it's creative, but it's like a totally different field. Um, So I think that the ready comparison is really, we know comparison is the thief of joy, right? Teddy Roosevelt. Um, So I think staying away, I think those are moments when I can feel technology diminishing my joy. Thank you for that. Uh, You recently had an excellent conversation with futurist Pamela Pavlishak about the concept of positive technology, which I really enjoyed. Um, what prompted that conversation? So I, I've i been thinking a lot about my technology use. Actually, another thing that sometimes diminishes my joy in technology is the, the tendency um, for technology to amplify negative emotion, right? Um, that all these platforms love to feed our anger and our anxiety because they know it'll keep us clicking because humans have an innate negativity bias. And that's for good reason, because if we avoid, if we avoided thinking about threats to, to our survival, we wouldn't be here anymore. And so of course, things that are dangerous to us loom large. And so social platforms, the algorithms, you know, that it's sort of an innate, it's a loop that triggers something within us um, that then we feed that, that algorithm and it feeds us more of that. Um, And so it can be very hard to look at just feeds and feeds and feeds of negative takes and articles and people being cruel to each other and all of that. So I was starting to look at my own tech use and asking this question, you know, when I, I know that tech brings me joy, so I don't want to give it up entirely. But at the same time, there are probably ways in which it's diminishing my joy. And in particular, you know, the mindless scrolling. When I find myself mindlessly scrolling because I'm sort of in this triggered loop, this Mm -hmm. emotionally triggered loop, and I can't stop what's happening there and how do I shift that? And as I started looking for answers to this question, how do I use technology in a more joyful way? I found that almost all the answers were basically stop using technology, like go on a digital detox, put your phone down, break up with your phone. And I was like, I I started reading some of these books and I was like, these are valid. And I understand this point. And I I know that I should probably turn my phone icons gray, right? That's a thing you can do in iOS is like make your whole phone gray scale so that you don't actually see the color. So it's less tempting. And that's a hundred percent true. We know that bright color makes you want to pick something up and look at it longer. So, but I didn't want to do that. And so I was really frustrated because I was like, okay, I think that there must be ways to use technology more joyfully. And yet the only thing, the only advice that anyone has is use it less. Stop. Yeah. Stop. And it didn't feel like the whole story. And so I went searching for people and I found a few different people who had um, different takes on how to use technology. And um, some of them are really involved in the design of technology, which is a really interesting space. But for this conversation in particular, I wanted to talk to someone who could help me just as a person, not as a designer, find more joyful ways to yeah. use my own technology. And yeah. and so when I found Pamela, I was like, wow, okay, so here's someone who's actually talking about how an individual can change their technology use or reframe their technology use mm-hmm. to find more joy in it. Yeah, I, a couple of things I really 
enjoyed the discussions you had about um, sort of the lows of technology or the negatives not coming from distraction, which is something that we hear a lot about, right? You know, technology is so distracting. It's keeping us hooked, all of these things. But you guys spoke about it not coming from distraction, but about coming from distortion. I found that incredibly interesting, particularly um, she talked about, you know, this, the distortion of our views of ourself, um, of our relationships, and also our interests, like the things we actually love. Could you speak a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I think we, yes, you're right. Distraction is the boogeyman. Um, and for good reason, right? I mean, we know that technology platforms have designed their products to be um, addictive, uh, and they tap into um, uncertain reward loops, um, which is, a, a, again, one of those innate tendencies we have that when we get uncertain rewards, when we open the app and sometimes there's a, a little, you know, red signal that yeah. we have likes and we, we and sometimes there isn't, that's more satisfying to us. So we know that they use those devices. But it's, you know, Pamela does these diary studies and she did this diary study of hundreds of people and looked at when they're happiest using technology. And what she found was that people are most unhappy with their technology use when there is an element of distortion, when it makes us feel not like ourselves um, or when we feel like the world seems different than it actually is. So the negativity bias is a great example of that. When you sign on to, you know, whatever feed, whatever social feed, and it just looks like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but you look outside and you know that there are problems in the world, but you also know that there's goodness in the world. And so it just feels incredibly skewed. And so when you leave that platform, you emerge feeling pessimistic and down and you don't feel like yourself. You feel like a, a you know, a, an angrier, more anxious, more pessimistic version of yourself. That's distortion. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it can do that in across many different ways. When you when you log on to a social platform and all you feel is jealousy, because you're just looking at people and you're like, why do they have that life and why do I not? That's a form of distortion mm -hmm. because it's distorting your natural emotions. You feel you want to feel like the generous and excited and enthusiastic version of yourself. That's mm -hmm. who you really are. Right. So when you leave feeling this sort of distorted version of that, um, that's that's a negative technology interaction. Oh, man, there's so much you could talk about there because I'm thinking right about, about mirroring. We want to see ourselves and other people. We go online and we see all of these perfectly curated feeds. We're like, we know that that's not real. We know that there's more going on behind the screen, but we never get, you know, a window into that. So it doesn't give us, you know, that experience of mirroring and feeling like, you know, I see myself here. I, I personally struggle with that. Yeah. I find for me, that's a distortion of reality for sure. Um, someone posted just and tagged me in it just in the last couple of days talking about how she was just asking a question. The question was, uh, when you see someone post a self-care post like them and their lavender bath or whatever it is, right? Hashtag self-care, hashtag blessed, whatever it is, does that insp actually inspire you to then go and do self-care? And she was reflecting that, in fact, it didn't for her. It actually just made her feel shame and feel bad. Like, I should be having more self-care as opposed to inspiring her. And so much of social media now is inspirational, right? It's inspirational, aspirational. And so... Yeah, not really a question there, but just sort of a reflection on my experience and some other people's experiences that I've heard of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you find yourself feeling shame while using technology, that's a good moment to 
explore what is causing that. Is that a moment where you want to prune your, you know, I, I sometimes talk about like comereying your feed, right? You, t- you go through and say, maybe that's not a feed. That person's feed is not one that makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel bad about myself. Absolutely. I've done that. I've muted people yeah. um, who, when I notice I'm looking at their feeds, I feel competitive. I, I, I think to myself, I don't have to feel this way. I can use, I can, I can tailor my technology so that it brings out the best impulses in me. And not all of that has to be about self-talk. I don't have to like see it feel bad and then try to pick myself back up again. I can just not see it. Absolutely. Um, And so I think that's one way, one way to do that. You guys also spoke in your conversation and then the interview I'm talking about is in Ingrid's awesome uh, free program, Joy Makeover on her website. So I will make sure to put a link in the show notes to that. And this is the conversation again with futurist Pamela Pavlis-Shack. She talked about positive uses of technology and they were all beautiful C words, which is always very helpful, creativity, connection, and compassion. And she spoke about how it, it seems like those who use technology well have rules and tools that align with their values and goals, which I found to be very true, um, given the nature of the conversations I have with people and also myself. Uh, would you say this is true for you, that you have tools and roles that really align with your values and goals? For sure. So um, I value creativity highly. And one of the things that I have learned is that when I use my phone first thing in the morning, it fills my attention with um, reactivity. So that's a place where the breakup with your phone model is useful for the first hour of my day. So I have a rule, which is no phone before breakfast. And I keep my phone in a different, um, I don't keep it next to my bed. So that's much easier to not just reach over and pick it up first thing. Um, So that's a rule that I use. Um, Tools. I mean, I think there are lots of tools. You know, what I've noticed is that when I think of my phone as a, or my computer as a device to achieve something that I want to achieve in the world, it's it's tends to be a much more joyful use of technology. Um, so when I think about Instagram as just a place to go space out, not very useful to me. But when I actually think about it as I want to connect intentionally with people on this platform and I want to ask questions and I want to share my story um, and see if others are feeling the same way um, when I when I use it in that way. It feels like a very valuable use of time. I don't regret the time I spend there. Something I personally took away from your conversation with her was about uh, I wrestle with using social media given the nature of my topic, which could be framed as the choice to disconnect from technology. And people actually have different definitions of JOMO. My definition is the joy of missing out on the right things. Mm -hmm. So that's different for each person. But I kind of talk about you know, toxic hustle and comparison and digital drain to make space for these things that bring us meaning and purpose and joy. You guys are talking about social media and oftentimes with social media, I have framed it or come to it as a means to an end, not as something that I could think of as creative. But you guys were talking about how we can go into those spaces. And if you frame it as I can actually be creative here, super empowering and joyful. And so I actually have taken back over my social media accounts in the last week for practical reasons, but also because I felt really empowered by that. This actually can be an expression of who I am and it doesn't have to be uh, just something to kind of get through. It's not a throwaway. You guys were talking about how we can think about it as just a throwaway, right? Because it changes so quickly. So a great example of that, of that reframing is, I mean, 
I really love editing photos. And when I first started doing it, it took me a really long time. And I would look at a photo and I, it would take me so long to know if it was right. And I, and I started trying to learn this. I mean, I took a photography class years ago. I took photography in college. But even so, I didn't feel like my eye had fully, like you need just repetition to learn something. Right. Um, and to feel good and confident at it. And the phone, the, the, what's so different than working with a camera, right, is that it's so fast to, pull, to shoot a photo, pull it into an, a photo editing app and edit it. And I, I have, it's very satisfying to look back over the last, like, let's say four years and see how fast it is now when I pull a photo in and how immediately I know whether it looks right or wrong um, to me, to my eye. So I have a, a sense of whether a photo, like, is what I want it to be. Um, that's an incredibly creative thing. And to know that that all happened because every day I'm out there editing photos that I put on my social media, that's a skill that I, I can mm. take away. And if I want to use that in an artful way, if I want to use that, I mean, there are all different ways that I can use that skill, that, that tuning of my eye. Um, so there are lots of things like that where when we look at the one-off action, we're like, oh, I'm just editing a photo. I'm just throwing it up on social media. Um, but there are lots of people who use social media captions, for example, like blogging. I mean, when I look at how long my captions are now, they're the way that I used. I mean, when I was blogging every day, they're very similar to that. Mm. And so I think that when we reframe the way that we're using our technology, so I think that's a big reframing is a big piece of it. The other thing is um, actually starting to look at the deeper need. Um, so one of the things that I really loved about, you know, Pamela's perspective is that sometimes we find ourselves doing something, but it's not what we really want to be doing. Um, so I open Twitter because I want information. I want to read articles. I want to be inspired. But actually, I would be better off if I opened Libby, which is an app that lets you borrow audiobooks from the library and filled my time with that because I would be getting, I would be satisfying the same need. So often now I'll look at like, what is the need? When I opened my phone and I was looking for something, what was the need? And is there a deeper craving under there that I can satisfy? Yeah. I have these three questions I encourage people to ask, which is, uh, what am I doing? Who is it for? To what end? Just, I right? Like, what, are, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing here? Who is it for? And yeah, what is the ultimate purpose? This is a great example with Libby. Um, I want to be informed. Is there a better way to be informed? Is there even a more joyful way to be informed? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I started, you know, what you do is you put yourself on the wait list. If there's a book that you want that's in high demand, you put yourself on the wait list. It ties to your local library card. And then when that book is ready, it gives you a little alert. And often, you know, it'll happen when I'm traveling and I'm like, oh, great. Now, as I walk through the airport, I get to listen to a book instead of like sitting there, standing there, walking around, scrolling Twitter and bumping into things. Right. <laughs> it's a much better um, way to to use that time. But we often don't think about it because we have these habitual ways of using our phones. If we can start to understand the deeper craving, mm -hmm. same thing with like, you know, often I, I realized when I was writing my book and I was working home alone all the time, I would open up social media to feel connected to people. And I started realizing if I could just schedule like phone calls with friends, just be like, hey, let's talk once a week or, you know, I'll send you a text. Um, that's a much more satisfying connection. Um, but I didn't realize because the reflexive behavior of opening the phone was so ingrained. I didn't realize why I was really doing it. Right. You were craving actual connection. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly that's satisfied too by a five-minute conversation. 
Totally. Where it won't be satisfied in a 45 minute scroll. Exactly. It's actually more efficient. Exactly. <laughs> but it's like we we have these um, low pressure, passive ways of achieving things. It kind of goes to um, something that I know Laura Vanderkam, who's a time and productivity expert, often talks about, which is this idea of effortful fun, that not all fun um, is is, you know, we think of our leisure time and we think, oh, I'm just going to finally crash out with some Netflix. But actually, a lot of the things that form our our best memories take a little bit more effort. They take a little planning. Mm -hmm. they, they take researching the new restaurant or they take, um, you know, buying tickets for a show. Those are the things that are going to make your time more memorable. Because when you spend hours watching Netflix, what happens in your brain is it does this weird thing where it actually like condenses all of those hours spent watching Netflix into like one hour in your memory because it's more efficient. Your brain doesn't have to, you didn't, nothing changed. Nothing was different. So your brain just records them as one hour. So when you look back at your time, it's like, where did all my time go? Well, your brain condensed it. Like it's like a defragmented hard drive. Literally, it just like squished it down and was like, okay, we can just file this away as one hour. So if you take, if you make a little bit more effort, you plan some more effortful, fun things in your life, your time ends up actually feeling more abundant. Wow. The whole idea around expanding time is something that I'm very fascinated by. So we could go way down that, but I want to yeah. get, I want to <laughs> dig a little, I want to dig a little bit into your book. Um, when did Joyful come out? Came out last September. So t September 2018. That's not too long. It's been a year. Yeah. Just a year. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay. So in Joyful, you share a Mark Twain quote that says, grief takes care of itself, but to get the full value of a joy, you must have someone to divide it with. Celebrating together. That's the end of the quote. And then you write, celebrating together propels the joy of a happy moment even higher. You go on to write, what is it about the physical experience of rejoicing with others that smooths out the rough edges of life in a community? And how can we use aesthetics of celebration to cultivate more shared joy in our daily lives? Um, I'm going to back up a little bit into a previous, I'm, not, I'm kind of reading it out of order, but I want to get to this point that you make at the end about our, our virtual experience. In the crushing of balancing work and family life, and with this simulacrum, I've never heard that word before, but it's a good word. Is that how you say it? S simulacrum, I think. Simulacrum I think. <laughs> of connection provided by social media. And I'm going to assume that means that like, we're all happening simultaneously. Is that correct? I, I think what I'm saying there is that it's the, it's the appearance. It's like the outward appearance of that as opposed to the actual felt experience of it. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Sure. It's easy for people to let opportunities for celebration slip by unheeded. I can't help but wonder what we are losing when we cede these moments of celebration to the virtual world. And my question for you is, how do you think we can reclaim those moments of celebration? I mean, it's as, I think it's as simple as bringing them back to the physical world and actually... so. One of the things that was really striking to me in my research on celebration is how physical it actually is and how, so I didn't know this when I first started asking this question, but there are animals that celebrate and the only animals that celebrate are highly intelligent and highly social. So elephants celebrate, um, they celebrate by stamping around and peeing and trumpeting when they come back together after being separated. Um, Wolves celebrate, they howl together after a hunt. Um, and 
um, and chimps are, of course, our closest relative chimpanzees. They celebrate. Um, they celebrate by hooting and hollering. And one of the really interesting things that happens after a chimpanzee celebration, um, and we know this because we see, we see it in captivity. And so Franz Duval, who's a, a really um, incredible ethologist, um, has, has observed these behaviors where caretakers will bring a bunch of a favored food to the chimp's enclosure and and the first chimpanzee that spots this will start hooting and and hollering and and the others start hooting as well and so everyone's hooting all at once and then um they start kissing and and hugging and embracing um and what they find is that um friendly body contact increases a hundredfold in that moment of celebration so it's a very intimate mm. experience and what happens after that is that whereas chimps tend to be very hierarchical after a celebration, they become more egalitarian and every animal, even the lowest ranking animal gets to participate in this feast. Um, and so if you look at what happens in human celebrations, it's much the same. When we celebrate physically together, um, we have an experience of release of emotion. We have experiences of contagiousness of emotion and emotion spreads. We know that emotion does spread in social networks, but the predominant means that we have of spreading emotion is our tone of voice, our facial expressions, our bodily gestures, all of those things spread emotion. And so when we do that online, we lose all of that. But I mean, if you look at the way that celebrations function in human society, they do the same thing. They ease tensions. We become less, uh, you know, if there's someone who you were sort of annoyed with um, and then you go to, you know, you have a block party and you see your neighbor who sort of he mows his lawn too early in the morning or whatever. And then you have a, a beer together and, and you watch your kids play and then suddenly you're not so mad anymore. Right. Absolutely. So so celebrations ease tensions um, and they hold communities together. And there's some really interesting research on actually the way that um, things like rhythm, moving together, dancing together, or singing together can do this. Sing singing together actually synchronizes the singer's heart rates. I've heard that before. So amazing. And it's not super surprising when you actually think about the fact that you're breathing in synchronicity. When you sing together, you're breathing at the same time. And so this actually helps to synchronize the heart rate. Um, but we start to become like one organism. Um, we start to feel when we move in a rhythm together. And so what we find is that cooperation increases. Um, we find that altruism increases. People are more likely to sacrifice their own good for the good of the group. Mm. Um, so it holds us together as a community. And so I think when we look at what's happening in society as a whole, the lack of communal celebrations, is it the only thing that's pulling us apart? No, of course not. But I think that um, we can all benefit from more time in festive situations, face-to-face -to -face, together. I'm putting you a bit on the spot, but one of the things I share and do in my work is actually quests, a little Jomo quest people can do to get, you know, off their phones and essentially into the real world. And I feel like celebrating would be a really good mm. one. Do you have maybe just off the top of your head, a suggestion for people around how to build in a little bit of in real life celebration in their lives? Oh, sure. I mean, I think... You know, when people hear celebration, um, often the introverts in the room um, get a little uncomfortable, right? Because it feels like a lot of people and it feels stressful and overwhelming. Um, but a celebration doesn't have to be that big. And so one of the celebrations that I love to do is a happy dance. You can do it by yourself, but it's really good to do with someone else. Um, my husband and I often do happy dances at the end of the week. You know, Friday night happy dance. We made it to the end of the week. We do it together. And it's just 
it feels really good. And it is a moment of, you know, rhythmic connection because you're dancing around and you're, you know, either you put on a song you love or you just, I don't know, do a silly little dance, but favorite, it really helps. Do you have a favorite song? What's your go-to? Right now it's Lizzo. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> that's like the go-to happy dance song. Um, but I, um, this is really funny. Uh, it's not a happy dance song, but it's sort of a, it's like a, you know, the old Mario brothers theme song. Yeah, of course do, I do. do, 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 do. It's, a, do. it's not, it's kind of hard to do a happy dance to it, but it's <laughs> a really good like mood lifter upper. So sometimes I will find myself singing that or I will like, I will sing it aloud and my husband will hear me doing it <laughs> um, because it's like, it's just. I know exactly what you're talking you know, about. Like I do cheery. it sometimes and, and I, and, my kids think I'm nuts. Yeah, and what's funny is, you know, there's the part where he goes into the underworld and it goes like do 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 do, and that's like when things are not going well. It's like I hear that song, and then I'm like, no, we got to get back up to the like do 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 because it always comes back up again, you know. So it's sort of a reminder for me that like sometimes you go down into that space, but you always come back up again, and so that's like the that's like a very silly but helpful theme song in my life. I'm so happy that you brought that up. Off the the topic of celebration. (laughs) But it is a way that technology brings me joy. Yes. Okay. I want to um, kind of start rounding out our conversation today by reading a little bit near the end of your book. And um, I'm just going to dig right in. So you write in Joyful. Given only the most basic elements and time, nature will reclaim any space in which humans have lost interest filling it up with a luxurious assembly of flora and fauna. And there's more there, um, but I'm just going to leave it at that. This aesthetic reminds us that nothing is irredeemable in this world. Nothing so ruined that is ever beyond hope. In renewal, we find perhaps the clearest expression of a truth that underlies all of the aesthetics in this book, that the drive toward joy is synonymous with a drive toward life. From that first revelation of the ancestral link between bright color and ripeness to the simplicity of the S-curve, this correlation has held true. Joy evolved for the express purpose of helping to steer us toward conditions that would encourage us to flourish. It is our inner guide to the things that animate, stimulate, and sustain us. Put more simply, joy is what makes life worth living. I just mostly want to say that I couldn't agree more. It's why I've committed myself to the pursuit of understanding how joy can sustain us, how we flourish in a world pulling us in a thousand directions. You know, we're all going to live with technology for the rest of our lives, but I truly believe that we get to decide how. So Ingrid, I want to thank you for your research and for your writing, for your passion, for what brings life, joy, and for sharing that with us today. Thank you for this and thank you for your work. And it's a real joy to have this conversation. Well, thank you for listening. You can learn more about our guests in the show notes and by visiting jomocast.com. The Jomocast is edited and produced by Thomas J. Inge, musician and composer by day, podcast ninja by night. The Jomocast is a listener supported Sign up as a patron at patreon.com forward slash JomoCast, and you'll get access to bonus episodes with myself and digital sociologist Jess Piriam, and a handwritten welcome note in the mail for me, because here at Jomo, 
we believe in the power of the tangible. You'll even get a shout out on the podcast. Patreon support makes the JomoCast possible. That link again is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash JomoCast. Don't forget to subscribe to JomoCast with your provider of choice. And if you loved this episode, leave us a five-star review. Want more Jomo? Patreon members meet online monthly to digital detox our devices and experience Jomo online and off. Sign up to become a Jomo member at patreon.com forward slash experience Jomo for support like this and so much more. I'm your host, Christina Crook. Thanks for listening. And may you always miss out on the right things.